This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Today is Sunday, September 22nd, 2019. On this day in 1933, notorious bank robber John Dillinger was arrested in Dayton, Ohio. For months, he had evaded police and the Pinkerton Detective Agency, but there was one person he couldn't outrun, his girlfriend's landlady. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Every day, we flip back the calendar to this date years ago and recount one event from true crime history. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and today I'm covering the September 22nd, 1933 arrest of 30-year-old bank robber John Dillinger. By this time, Dillinger had stolen an estimated $50,000, the equivalent of almost $1 million today. Before we unpack the ramifications of Dillinger's arrest, let's go back to the early hours of September 22, 1933, a little after midnight. Lucille Stricker shot up in her bed. The footsteps in the boarding house hallway were soft, but her ears were trained to detect late-night visitors slipping into her tenants' rooms. Normally, she let these indiscretions slide, but tonight, she was on alert for one man in particular. Quiet as a mouse, she peeked her head out of her room. She didn't get a good look at this nocturnal intruder, but she saw a flash of his fancy suit as he turned a corner. She had seen that suit before. It belonged to John Dillinger. Earlier that summer, Lucille's tenant, a young, unhappily married woman named Mary Jenkins Longnecker, told her she was dating the wanted bank robber. Lucille had heard of Dillinger. He'd been terrorizing banks across the Midwest for the past several months. Mary thought it was all terribly exciting, but Lucille didn't share her opinion. A few weeks later, Lucille spotted Dillinger visiting Mary's room. She alerted the Dayton Police Department, along with the Pinkerton Detective Agency, which had been hunting Dillinger on behalf of one of the banks Dillinger had robbed. Although the notorious gangster had left by the time law enforcement arrived, Lucille was sure he'd return. With her blessing, the authorities took up a room in the boarding house. 
Dayton detectives Russell Fall and Charlie Gross began conducting 24-hour surveillance on Mary. Weeks went by with no sign of Dillinger. Resigned to the fact that Dillinger wouldn't return, detectives Fall and Gross called off the surveillance on September 21st and headed home. But Lucille had remained vigilant, and now she knew she was right to be. After watching Dillinger disappear around the corner, Lucille tiptoed back into her room. She picked up the phone and called the police station. As she spoke to the detectives, Lucille kept her voice to a low whisper. This could be their only chance to catch Dillinger. She didn't want to be remembered as the reason he got away. She wanted to be remembered as the one who put him behind bars. The police said they'd head for the boarding house with all haste. Lucille quickly threw a bathrobe over her nightgown and headed down to meet them. To get outside, Lucille had to walk past Mary's room. Light was spilling out from under the door. She could hear two voices murmuring on the other side. As she continued down the hall, a loose floorboard creaked. Lucille cringed. She turned back to Mary's room, but there was no indication that they had heard her. Breathing a sigh of relief, she headed down the stairs and out the front door. Detectives Fall and Gross arrived a few moments later, along with Dayton Chief of Detectives S.E. Yendes. With the detectives in tow, Lucille walked back inside and guided them to Mary's room. She raised a trembling hand and knocked on the door. The voices on the other side went quiet. A few heart-stopping moments later, Lucille heard footsteps approaching the door. Mary cracked the door open, and the detectives made their move. They barged in with guns drawn. Dillinger was sitting on Mary's bed. When he saw the detectives, he immediately put his hands up. With Fall and Gross jamming a sawed-off shotgun and a Tommy gun in Dillinger's face, Chief Detective Yendes frisked the famous bank robber. He found a 45 automatic in Dillinger's pocket and a small pistol up his sleeve. Yendes also found escape routes out of various U.S. cities, but when questioned about them, Dillinger refused to talk. Every time one of the detectives asked him something, he would say, see my lawyer. It didn't matter. They had gotten their man. John Dillinger was incarcerated at the Allen County Jail in Lima, Ohio. But if his friends had their way, he wouldn't be there for long. Coming up, John Dillinger's associates come to his rescue. And now back to the story. In the early hours of September 22, 1933, 30-year-old bank robber John Dillinger was placed under arrest and sent to Allen County Jail in Lima, Ohio. But he wouldn't remain there for long. Five days after Dillinger was arrested, his plan for escape went into action. On September 27, 1933, Eight of John Dillinger's associates, incarcerated at the Indiana State Prison, executed an elaborate escape. Dillinger, along with two female accomplices, had helped to smuggle guns into the prison's shirt factory by packing them into a box of thread. 
Using these weapons, Dillinger's friends successfully broke out and headed for a hideout in Hamilton, Ohio. After hearing about Dillinger's arrest, his associates decided to repay the favor. He had helped get them out of jail, now they would do the same. Led by fellow bank robber Harry Pierpont, three of the escaped convicts headed for Lima on October 12, 1933. Disguised as police officers, Pierpont and the other two men approached the small jailhouse. There was only one man overseeing the entire place, Sheriff Jess Sarber. And at that particular moment, he and his wife were finishing dinner at his residence in the jail building. Pierpont and his men approached the door and knocked. Sheriff Sarber opened the door, a confused look on his face. He wasn't expecting any officers. Pierpont told him they were there to transfer Dillinger to the state penitentiary. Sarber didn't buy it for a second. He asked the men for identification. They showed him their guns instead. The sheriff reached for his own weapon, but he was too slow. Pierpont shot him in the chest. As Sarber slumped to the ground, Pierpont and his men forced their way inside. Mrs. Sarber handed them the keys without a fight. Leaving her to tend to her husband, the robbers sprang Dillinger from his cell and hit the road. But the mayhem was just getting started. After leaving Sarber to bleed out on his living room floor, Dillinger and his friends headed to the police arsenal in Peru, Indiana. They easily overpowered the three officers stationed there and stole machine guns, sawed-off shotguns, and all the ammunition they'd ever need. Over the next few months, Dillinger's gang gained even more notoriety as they robbed banks all across the country. After vacationing in Florida for the holidays, they decided to head to Arizona. They wanted to keep a low profile until some of the heat on them cooled off. But Dillinger couldn't help himself. On his way out west, he and an associate held up the first national bank in Gary, Indiana. Things didn't go as planned, and he killed a police officer during the escape. He eventually made it to Tucson, Arizona, but the law was on his tail. Dillinger was arrested once again shortly after New Year's Eve. He spent the next few months in Indiana's Crown Point Prison, awaiting trial for murdering the police officer during his botched robbery in Gary, Indiana. But on March 3, 1934, Dillinger escaped again. It isn't clear how he got out, but some said he had carved a wooden gun in the prison workshop and painted it black with shoe polish. Another story claims a corrupt prison guard gave Dillinger a real weapon. Regardless of the method, he was able to escape in a stolen police car to Illinois. But crossing a state line with a stolen car was a felony, which put Dillinger in the jurisdiction of the FBI. Dillinger was quickly labeled as public enemy number one, with a $10,000 reward offered to anyone who helped capture him. That would be about $187,000 today. As the manhunt intensified, the proverbial noose around Dillinger's neck tightened. 
And on Sunday, July 22, 1934, the FBI finally caught their man. At 5 p.m., police surrounded Dillinger as he exited the Biograph Theater in Chicago. But unlike when he was caught in Lucille Stricker's boarding house, he decided to put up a fight. He never stood a chance. As he reached for his gun, Dillinger was riddled with bullets. He died at the scene. In the throes of the Great Depression, John Dillinger's colorful exploits made him one of the most renowned criminals in American history. Like his contemporaries Bonnie and Clyde, Dillinger gained almost mythical status in the eyes of the public. Criminals like Dillinger, who stole only from banks and never directly from people's pockets, became heroes. He was seen as a Robin Hood of the 1930s. When he died, he was surrounded by onlookers eager for a souvenir. They fought and jostled as they dabbed their handkerchiefs in Dillinger's blood. They didn't care about the money he had stolen or the people he had killed. They just wanted proof that they were there on the day John Dillinger was gunned down. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find all episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carrie Murphy, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Alex Benedon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 